Uh, we're going to open up God's Word. If you've got a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. So a different part of Scripture. If you're watching from home, you want to use uh, the, uh, the Version Bible to find your way there. A digital version here would be fine as well. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And while you make your way there, let me ask you something. The broken window theory. Are you familiar? The broken window theory. It's this. It's a criminological theory that states that the visible signs of crime, antisocial behavior, and civil disorder created in an urban environment will create further crime and disorder, including the more serious of crimes. This has been a disturbing week for our country, to be sure. In our capital, our windows are broken. It's considered previously maybe the safest place you could be on this planet, and yet this week... Our windows were broken. And it's not the glass breaking off that we find alarming. That's not what's particularly bad about it, but it's what it represents. That broken glass represents broken communication, broken ideologies, broken trust. Here's the bottom line. Uh, We have been, from the dawn of time, men have been terrible about breaking things. Been terrible about breaking things. Here's what we know, uh, that from the beginning of time, covenants and contracts with one another, men break them all the time, tear them up, burn them, throw them away. And it happens, and it's happened from the beginning, and it will continue to happen. But this is not the case when God establishes a covenant. Isn't that encouraging for us today? And when we look at our passage today, we're going to learn a lot more than that. So, Today begins, as I talked about in our welcome this morning, 21 days of prayer. It's also beginning another journey together through Scripture. We're beginning here today a new sermon series from 1st and 2nd Samuel. Did you get there yet? 1st and 2nd Samuel, we're going to read there uh, together. Today our primary passage is going to be from 2nd Samuel chapter 7. Normally, I read from the New International Version, because that's typically what's in our seats here at the church. Uh, But I'm going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to use today the King James translation. Uh, I'm going to share with you some specific things that that translation brings to light, and I'll I'll demonstrate that here in just a moment. So if you put your masks on, if you're here in the room, would you stand with us? We're going to read through our primary passage here together of 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. You ready? Here we go. And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelt within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night, when the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. As wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. 
Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray this morning that you speak to us once again through your holy word. As we begin a new year together, Lord, we pray that it would be a year of restoration. Lord, we pray that it would be a time that you would restore our vision, restore our passions, restore our relationships, restore our health. Lord, we pray that as we begin this journey together, Lord, that you would help us fix our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We trust you in all these things, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're here in the room, you can be seated. Now, if you want to have a good time, invite all of your friends together and then read a chapter aloud out of the King James Version of the Bible and see how you're doing. You get tongue twisted. It's a little bit different. There's a little bit of nuances there that you're not used to saying. In the ancient world, certainly one of the most famous people to emerge was a strategic thinker, a military conquistador, and certainly uh, and a young man who was a student and the most celebrated student of a philosopher named Aristotle. This young man was the son of King Philip of Macedon. He's known throughout the Western world by a name, a name and title, what? Does anyone know? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Now, he is known by this title because he embarked on a military conquest throughout the entire region of the Mediterranean world. He went out on this endeavor not only for military reasons, but for scientific reasons and cultural reasons as well. Because he was a student of Aristotle, Alexander was keenly interested in science. And it's been said that this was the most heavily funded scientific endeavor in all of human uh, existence until uh, the United States started to send people to the moon. Isn't that interesting? That until then, this was the highest level of financial involvement to be able to send because while along with his soldiers as he was going and conquesting the region he was also sending a, a whole army of scientists and they were collecting all types of samples from all around the regions of, of plant life and, and animal life and making sure that they were documenting things as they went along the way. This was all part of Aristotle's influence on Alexander. But don't miss this because it's one of the things that we all know about Alexander was that his desire was to bring unity to the ancient world. He was looking for cultural unities. And this program, the program that he developed, became known as Hellenization, or that word means to, to make you Greek. 
in many ways. And so each of the areas that he would take over, when he would uh, take over in conquest a region, that he would uh, teach them and have them taught and force them to learn a new language, this Greek language, so that they would be unified and there would be unity in all of the area that he took advantage of. And so they would introduce this new Greek language to the places they would go. And for instance, for us, the New Testament text that we hold in front of us was originally written in Greek because they, the Jews, were uh, Hellenistic Jews who had been taken over by Alexander. What I'm interested today, though, is drawing particular attention for you and for me at this title that has been given to Alexander. He is called Alexander what? The Great. He's called great because of the apparently unprecedented level of achievement that he was able to accomplish in his lifetime. But I have a bone to pick with historians. At the end of the day, let's consider when we go back into the ancient world and start passing out titles like this, titles like the great, we have to consider there's another figure Another young soldier, another young man who is deserving of this title far more than Alexander could ever dream of. And that person is going to be the subject of our messages and our sermons over the next 12 weeks. That's the Old Testament character that we are going to talk about the life of, the life of a man that I would be arguing that you should call David, King David, David the Great. David the Great. You see, there's one thing that we cannot say about Alexander of Macedon. He was never called a man after God's own heart. That title, that distinct title, that distinction was given to King David, David of Israel, David the Great. Now in our day, in our time, we are obsessed We are obsessed with people, and we put them up on a pedestal, idols that we call our heroes. Think about it. What type of people do we give attention to? Do we give our financial uh, uh, finances to? Do we uh, look at and and study and try to be like? They can be uh, rock musicians. They can be sports figures. They can be uh, literary giants. They can be political figures. They can be monarchies. These are the people that we put as a pedestal. They can be CEOs of large companies, but we put them up on a pedestal. And I think that you could look at those giants and look at their accomplishments and military generals and so on. They're so elevated at the status of a hero. But I would like to argue that you are missing the point that there's this one person, one single person that combines all of the achievements of all the greatness that we find wedged together here in scripture of all of those areas. He is a rock star in his own right. He is a poet and a literary giant in his own right. He is a mighty leader in this name that we know as David, an Old Testament king of Israel. His kingdom, in fact, is so exemplary, so intentional, that the very kingdom of God would become associated with the kingdom of David. So much so that even Christ's kingship in the New Testament is seen as the completion and the fulfillment of the kingdom of David. So why does this king, this exemplary king, But he's not even the first king of Israel. Chronologically, he's the second king of Israel. Why does he hold so much weight? Why does he hold so much space? Why does he hold so much value to the people of Israel? Why would we ever call him David the Great? Because actually, we find out that David brokered a contract 
between the God of the universe and himself. Actually, to be more correct as I state that, the God of the universe, God himself, negotiates a contract with David. And this contract, knowing from the dawn of time, knowing that men have a terrible record of breaking things, God determines that he will hold and he will fulfill both sides of the contract himself without any of David's help. Today we'll find an important revelation about God and the way that he moves on this earth and his purposes for mankind here on this planet. And it's written right here, which is why I chose to use today, use today the King James Version of our Bibles. That text is written right here, beginning of the chapter, verse number 1, 7, chapter, verse 1, and it came to pass. And it came to pass. You'll find this statement throughout the Bible, particularly in the King James Version of the Bible. It is used more than a thousand times throughout Scripture, and it came to pass. So what's the big deal? If it's written so often, what's the big deal? Well, if you think about it, most of us have always considered this phrase of the idea of, of and then it happened, and then something else happened, and then something else happened. It's kind of the idea of what we look at it with. But if you think about it from the, the purpose of the writer uh, Samuel here as he is writing and documenting the life of David so that we can pay attention, so that we can focus on David the Great, what it never says and what biblical authors never say is that, and it came to stay. They always use the words, and it came to what? Pass. And it came to pass. You see, nothing in this world, no one in this world was ever intended to be permanent. No, not even King David. David the Great. David, the man after God's own heart. Not even he would be able to have that title of permanence. It came to pass. David's son Solomon, after David dies... Solomon writes the words that we are familiar with that would, that would encapsulate all that we experience here on the earth. He says this, life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's vanity. It's here today and gone tomorrow. So let's read Samuel's words here again, beginning in verse 1. It says this, And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round from all of his enemies, the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. I've introduced you to Alexander the Great. We've talked about David the Great. Let's introduce our third character this morning, Nate the Great. Some of you saw that coming. So Nathan the prophet, when we talk about Nathan the prophet, he's, he's a great guy. And his job is to, at this point in his life, see later in his life, he's going to look David square in the eye when it comes to the sin of Bathsheba and look him in the eye and, and give him this parable and look him in the eye and say, you, David, you are that man. But right now, Nathan hasn't grown to that point yet. And all he says is, hey, that's a great idea. Hey, you're a great guy. Let's go with that. This is a great idea. Do whatever you want. No one can stop you. You're David the Great. You're pretty hot stuff. <laughs> They're living there. David is living there, sitting in an easy chair in a cedar house. You know what cedar smells like? You familiar? Familiar with like that, that smell of cedar? My grandparents put an addition on their house a few years back, about eight or ten years ago. 
And in that house, uh, what's beautiful about that house is they live in a ranch. They added this kind of wing off the back of the ranch. But it's a ranch house, and many of you live in ranches. That's fine. But their ranch house is actually on a ranch. It's fantastic. And so you come through into their master bedroom, and it kind of the doors spill open, and you kind of walk out, and there's this covered porch with a tin roof on it. So you can sit there in your easy chair, and the, and the rain will pitter-patter on the roof and that ping on the roof. And as you're sitting there and looking out over uh, the pool that's right there by the side off of the back door, then behind the pool you look a little bit further, and you'll see the horse pastures that are there, and the horses are out grazing in the pasture with the wooden fences all the way around the pasture. It's a beautiful scene. It's something that after I work here for 114 years and retire, I might be able to have something like this. I love it there. But when you go there, if you ever visit my grandparents' house, you decide to walk into their bedroom and go into their closet. They put in cedar closets in their bedroom. It's fantastic. I don't know if you've ever been in a cedar closet. You go in and you take a deep breath and you just smell the cedar and it smells like westerns, and it smells like leather, and horses, and saloons, and it smells like, uh, uh, what, is, oh, what is that president's name? I want to make sure that I get his name right. Oh, I wrote it down. I want to make sure. It smells like Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, there's just something gritty about that. Like, like, you can be Huckleberry Finn and just go in there. You can smell him. He's talking to you in there. It's incredible. This is what David is doing. He's sitting on his easy chair on the porch. Rain is falling on the roof, pitter-pattering on the roof. He's looking out at all that he has, and he realizes, he sits there, and it comes to the realization, he says, wait a minute. I'm just a sheep herder. What on earth am I doing here? He takes a deep breath, and his shoes smells good, and his clothes smell good, and everything smells. It's all wonderful, and it's great, and he says, I've got to do something about this. I'm sitting in this house and it's beautiful, and it's perfect, and the ark of God is in a tent in the backyard. He said, something is wrong. I want to do something about it. That's his logic. He's thinking, I've got to build God a house, a temple. Nathan the prophet, Nate the great, he goes, hey, that's Nate the great, great idea. Hey, that's a great idea. Go ahead, you do that. You do whatever you want to do, because that's the stage of life that he is in. Do it with all of your heart. But you know what? Nathan the prophet is dead wrong. And God tells him in the next few verses that he is absolutely incorrect. Why? Because it came to pass. Let's look at David's big plans for God's house. He's all excited. He wants to tell everybody about it. You see, David believed that God of such glory should have a house that would be fitting of his majesty and his wonder. David wants to give something back to God who has given him everything. David has no ulterior motives in, in trying to do something for himself. He's actually trying to do this for the Lord. He wanted God to be exalted. He wants the Lord to receive the glory and honor that he deserves. But David missed something. David the great here. David the mighty king. When David ascends to the throne, he conquers, he takes over, he extends the borders of Israel to the greatest extent that they would ever be extended. Even today, it's the largest that they had ever been in terms of geography as under David's rule and under David's authority. But David missed something. David was settled into his palace. David the Great now had rest from his enemies. But David made some misguided assumptions that this arrangement would be permanent. 
As he's thinking through things, looking through things, at the expansion of God's people, that the great I am, as he had promised to Abram, who became Abraham, and now they are coming back into the promised land, and they are now under his great leadership, and under God's great movement, now had given them peace in the promised land. This must be the end. Capped off by his leadership, both militarily and spiritually, David the Great as king, this must be it. But Israel's prominence had not come to stay. It had come to pass. It had come to pass. Look at verse 4. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord. So thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Verse 7. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house out of cedar? Some of you 80s movies fans. Do you remember the 80s movie, uh, Crocodile Dundee? Anyone remember this movie? It's a ridiculous story for you who are younger. Uh, like, it's, it's a ridiculous story about this guy who's from the deep outback. He's an Australian. He's been brought into the city, the busiest city in the world, New York City. And he's trying to interact with life in the city. But he's just a backwoodsman. He's a shepherd in many ways. One of my favorite scenes, they come out of a building. And he and his girlfriend are walking down the street. And someone asks him for a light. And he says, okay. And he goes to give him a light. And the guy responds and he says, he pulls a knife on him and he says, give me your wallet. And his girlfriend says, he's got a knife. Give him your wallet. Give him your money. And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't respond. He looks back at her and he says, that's not a knife. This is a knife. And he pulls out this giant knife. Like who knows where on earth did he have this knife stored away on his body? And they all take off running. He's victorious. New York City, run and hide from Crocodile Dundee. In many ways, in many ways, when we look at this passage, it's as if David has all the blueprints spread out on the table. He's got everything set. Everything is ready to go. And through Nathan, God speaks to David. It's as if God were looking down and looking at all of his plans, all of the blueprints, and he said, that's not a house. This is a house. And he starts to explain to him what his plans are for. You see, God identified with people, not with property. The building had never been an issue for God. Don't get me wrong. We love our building here. I love the fact that it's heated here this morning. And in the summer when it's hot and sweltering, we love the fact that there's air conditioning. And we love the fact that our parking lot was paved this summer. Those are all good things. But those are not the things that God is most passionate about. God was in the tent. He was walking with, fellowshipping with, identifying with his people. He didn't need a house. And picture it. David, he's fretting. He's strategizing. He's planning. I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to make plans for God. Nathan, see if God likes this idea. Isn't it a good idea, Nathan? What do you think God will say? And Nathan responds. And he says, give this message to David. David, I've got plans for you. Forget the house, David. Forget the temple. Listen. Listen to my plans for you. And God has some big plans for David's house. So David had some big plans for God's house, but God has big plans for David's house. Beginning in verse 12, read this. The Lord declares to you 
that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when the days be fulfilled that thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen, David, you want to build me a house? You're building something out of wood and out of stone. That won't ever happen, is really what he's saying to him. And I'll build you a house, God says. It's not going to be a building, but it's going to be a legacy, a dynasty, a lineage. I'll establish the reign of your offspring. He will build a house for me, and his kingdom will prevail forever. So this promise, it comes true, as you should expect, in more than one way. David builds no house for God. He dies, he passes away, it is his son Solomon who actually constructs the temple. Descendants of David then would rule and they would reign over Israel and Judah for centuries. But those kingdoms, they will come to an end. The promise of an everlasting kingdom finds its fulfillment later in a strange meandering river of a lineage that finds its way to a young man, a young family named Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 9 says, I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now you'll do what, David the Great? (laughs) Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. David the Great, indeed. (laughs) In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi. He says this, Therefore God exalted him, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the lineage, the throne of David. So God had big plans for David's house. Let's look specifically. God had big plans for a little city. A little city. This passage should be familiar to you. We just read it a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. What? And it came to pass that in those days that they were went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. This is a familiar passage. We, again, we just read it a few weeks back. It's an advent. It's leading up to Christmas that Mary and Joseph, they were about to be taxed. They needed to go to his home city. You want to take a stab at what his home city is? Bethlehem, the city of David. David. Continuing on, the passage, verse 46, chapter 2, verse 46. This is the passage that Mike taught from last week. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, that's Jesus, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. Why were they so amazed? Why were the crowds already gathering around this little boy? Why were the teachers and Pharisees of the law, why were the teachers enamored with this young man? Why was he three days late to joining up with the family caravan when the teacher was saying, well, just wait just a minute. Before you leave, let me ask you one more question. (coughs) He said, oh, I think mom and dad need me to get out of here. They said, wait, 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 it'll be okay. Let me just ask you this other question. He responded again and again, and their mind was blown. They were amazed. Why? Because perhaps... This young man is 
the one, perhaps this offspring in the line of David, that he is the one, the Messiah that we have been waiting for. He just might be the one that David had a covenant with God for, who would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is amazing. And they were ready. They were ready to crown him king. But Jesus, the perceived son of a lowly carpenter, but Jesus the promised son in the house of David. But Jesus, the son of man, so he's the son of God wearing human flesh, had not come to stay. No, he had not come to stay here and set up a human throne and a human kingdom here on earth. Once again, God had something else in mind. He had come to pass. If you read in John 13, we discover this conversation that happens. It takes place there with the disciples in the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified. Jesus had just finished washing the disciples' feet, and they are about to break bread when Jesus gives some very disturbing news. Chapter 13, verse 19 says this, Now I tell you, before it happens, so that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you will betray me. The disciples are stunned. They look around the room. They try to figure out who would dare, which one of these men, the men who had walked with him in ministry for more than three years, they'd given up everything to be with him, who would dare to do damage to potentially the chosen one of God, the one who is in the lineage in the house of David, And at Peter's prompting, he pushes John, and John finally asks the question, Who is it that will betray you, Lord? Verse 27 says, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus said. Judas takes the bread, he leaves. The remaining disciples are, are confused. What is going on? What is happening? Did Judas go out and get something for the Passover? They knew that he was managing the funds. Did Jesus give him a task before he left? What is this all about? They had no idea that he was going out and he would turn over Jesus and them to their enemies for a price. The more unthinkable thing that they could possibly do. And then Jesus says this about their leader, Peter. Jesus tells them that Peter would betray them three times that very night. Now, Peter, this is Peter. Peter has been their spokesman, their leader for the disciples. His nickname was The Rock, according to the name that Jesus had given him. But Jesus announced that that rock, that very rock, would crumble before them before the night was over. So Judas, he's left in the middle of supper, and it appears that Peter is going to leave them shortly behind that. So, of course, the disciples are troubled, they're concerned The world that they know is falling apart by the minute. What if they become separated from this Jesus forever? And then Jesus says something. Jesus says something that connects all the dots of God's plan, of what he has been working on all along. The big plans that God was working, what God was sharing with David. When David said, I want to build you a house, God said, I've got something much bigger in mind. The true meaning of the Davidic covenant. Jesus makes room in the Father's house. 
John 14, beginning in verse 1, says this. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. You see, sometimes we read this passage and we, we misassume. We start thinking about uh, Jesus working with hammer and nails and building a house somewhere that will one day be visible to us in heaven, some futuristic place after we die. But what Jesus is telling the disciples here, Jesus is telling them is he is preparing a place for them. Do you know what he is referring to? He's referring to the present circumstance that they are in and really the present circumstance that you and I are in today. He is going to prepare a place for them. He is going to prepare a place for us. And the place that he is going is on a hill called Golgotha, on a hill called Calvary. He is going to the cross. And that is how he will prepare a place. You see, when we talk about David, there's an aspect of his life that we cannot pass over in silence. It's in each and every human on this planet. It's in part of every descendant of Adam and Eve. It's sin. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul calls himself what? He calls himself the chief of sinners. When he thinks back on his life, realizes the things that he has done, realizes that he so vigorously persecuted Christians and savagely attacked the early church, Paul looks at himself and sees himself. He says, I am the chief of sinners. But out of his awareness of that fact, out of his acknowledgement of that sinfulness, Paul becomes the chief of architect of the New Testament and of teaching the church about the very grace of God because he was one who had personally experienced it. So if Paul, while we are reading the New Testament, calls himself the chief of sinners, if we look back at the Old Testament, who would we say in the Old Testament is the chief sinner? And you would come to the conclusion it would have to be David. You see, if the blood of Stephen is on the hands of Paul, then the blood of Uriah is going to be on the hands of King David. Even David, David the Great, King David of Israel, of Israel's greatest kingdom, King David, the man after God's own heart, still needs, and you and I still need, a Savior. Through Christ's death, his resurrection, <coughs> the body of Christ is transformed into a place with many rooms, many mansions in which we can dwell today. It's referred to by the Apostle Peter as the living house. And what is this structure? Uh, what is uh, this, this chief cornerstone of this whole building structure that's coming together? What is it? It is who? Jesus Christ. And furthermore, our Father's house that is being built, it's, it's a place that we were meant to say. In our Father's house, there are many rooms. In our Father's house, we were meant to live there forever. In our Father's house, we find peace and we find safety. In our Father's house, we find comfort. There are no broken windows in our Father's house. Jesus knew the road would be tremendously difficult for his disciples. He knew that the early church and those who would choose to follow him later would need to have peace and security and be reminded of his words so that they would believe. Jesus knew that they would need peace that this world would never be able to offer them. 
He knew this because Jesus looked and he said, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he himself is the great shepherd. And David, he remains the great king of Israel. And you know what? He did know a few things about sheep as well. As Brian comes, he's going to lead us in our final song here this morning. I want to read for you probably the most familiar psalm that you know. As David pens these words, though, think about it in the context of what was meant to be permanent, what was meant to pass away. Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will what? I will dwell in the house of God.